Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. As you can see on the screen, we are going to be starting, uh, I'm going to start a series of studies uh, on the book of Philippians entitled, Let This Mind Be In You, and this will be part one of that series of studies. In... In 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, starting in the first verse, it says, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which some think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Right now, a war is being waged. A battle is being fought and the stakes have never been higher. And in the passage that we just read, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into the nature of this war. It isn't on some foreign battlefield. It isn't fought with with bombs or tanks or battleships. Paul says that this isn't a physical war fought with physical or carnal weapons. Rather, this war that is being fought is in the heart and in the mind. Every day at every moment, there's a spiritual battle raging for your heart and for your mind. And Satan, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, will use and exploit every avenue to try and win the battle for your mind. He will attempt to build strongholds in your mind that will come between you and your relationship with God. Some of these strongholds come in the form of our worldview or our worldly knowledge. Perhaps it's a view of, of moral relativism or secularism that says, I have my truth, you have your truth, and, and, and let's all do what we think is right in our own minds. Or it's a, 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 an idea of materialism or, or, or a hedonistic view of life that says, I'm going to do me, I'll live for me, it's whatever I want, I'm going to do whatever makes me feel good, I'm going to fulfill my desires, my lusts, life is about me. Or it's a worldview that doesn't have room for God in it at all. The atheist who says there is no God, or even uh, the evolutionist that says that God didn't create me. I'm just the next step in the evolutionary chain. But for many of us, the struggle, the mental struggle that we deal with, the strongholds that we have to face in our own lives and in our own minds are more personal. Even if we don't align ourselves with one of these types of 
of worldviews, we still struggle with the mental strongholds of our attitudes and the view of ourselves in the world and the people around us. Perhaps we might struggle with anxiety and worry and fear. We're so consumed with what, what might happen tomorrow or next week, or next month, or next year, or 30 years from now, we are paralyzed, and we're unable to serve God today. Perhaps we struggle with guilt and insecurity. We wonder why and how anybody, much less God, could love someone like me with with what I've done, with the mistakes in my past, with with the skeletons that I have in my closet, Why would God want someone like me? So instead of drawing close to God, we try to hide from Him. Or why would anybody else want someone like me? With my flaws, why would anybody want me? So we isolate ourselves. We don't build relationships with people around us. Maybe we stop going to church and and we end up lonely and depressed. Exactly the situation that makes it easier for Satan to attack us even further. Perhaps we struggle with with bitterness or or, or resentment. We've we've been hurt by someone. Maybe someone uh, that's a family member or a co-worker or someone at church. And we just can't let it go. We can't forgive them and we hold on to these things and we stew on them and we think about them and we let them eat us up on the inside. Regardless of the fact that God has forgiven us of so much, we set ourselves up as some sort of higher authority, and we refuse to let go of things and and let go of what other people have done. And we get to the point where we can't sit down with someone, and we can't sit there during church without thinking about what that person down the road did to us. Or maybe we make it where we get to the point where we have to make sure that we go and we tell other people about what they did. And that bitterness takes root and it ends up eating us up on the inside. And perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Jeff, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm good. I don't have any of those sort of worldviews. I'm not materialistic. I, 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 don't, I don't believe in any of those sorts of things. I, I, I don't deal with anxiety or worry. I never fear. I, I love everyone around me. Jeff, I'm doing great. Don't worry about me. And if that's the first thought that comes to your mind, perhaps you should consider the stronghold of pride. If Satan can't keep us from God with a worldly view of things or or things like anxiety or fear, he will exploit that part of us that makes us think that we are better than we really are. And our pride will begin to take hold. And this is particularly dangerous for a Christian. We begin to think, I, I, Jeff, I've got this thing pretty much figured out, I think. Why do I need to listen to anybody else? I know all, all about the Scriptures. I know I'm a, I'm a strong person that doesn't give in to those sort, of any, those sort of things. So why do I need to listen to anybody else? I'm never wrong, right? So why would I need to listen to anybody else? What can anybody else teach me? God is pretty pleased with me, I think. And Satan sits back and is pleased that pride has built a stronghold in our mind. 
And these things aren't easy to overcome. It isn't like we can just snap our fingers and one day we don't think about these things. They don't just magically disappear. And at times we can get to the point where we think it's impossible to defeat them. But they can be overcome. Notice again what Paul said in verses 4 and 5 when he said, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. These strongholds can be torn down. These thoughts can be brought into submission. Our minds can be renewed. God can help us and equip us and strengthen us to win the battle for our hearts and our minds. And one of the best examples or sections of Scripture that deals with the mindset that we must have as Christians is Paul's letter to the Philippian church. In this letter, we see such statements as, let this mind be in you, the theme passage that we will use as we go through this series. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The third chapter in the 15th verse says, let us therefore as many be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this unto you. And then in the fourth chapter and the eighth verse, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there any be, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Over and over again in the letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds them how to think how their mindset should be, because he knew how vital this is in our war against sin and against Satan, and how important this is in our relationship with God. So over the course of the next four or five sermons that I give on Sunday mornings, we will be going through this series entitled, Let This Mind Be In You. Will you we will be discussing the mindset that we're called to have as disciples in Christ. We'll be going through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. We'll see that we are called to have a gospel-centered mindset that views trials and sufferings in the proper light. We will discuss the humble, Christ-like mindset that we're called to have to serve one another. And we'll discuss how we must shift our focus away from the things of the world and towards God and our relationships. But before we dive into the the text of the Philippian letter in our next sermon, I want for us this morning to discuss the context and some of the background of the book. And we're going to spend quite a bit of our time this morning discussing who the letter was written to and and the, the people that were there in the city of Philippi. As I mentioned, the, the, the book was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote this letter while he was imprisoned there in Rome, somewhere around AD 60 to AD 62. You'll, you'll hear this commonly referred to as one of the quote-unquote prison epistles that he wrote. Philippi was, was located in northeastern Greece. It was an ancient Greek city that was conquered by Rome in AD or BC, excuse me, BC 168. What I'd like to spend the bulk of our time this morning uh, discussing and looking at, though, is is who the letter was written to. Uh, 
Of course, it was written to the the church at Philippi, and and that is sort of a generic thing to think about or say. Uh, You know, if, if if, if someone wrote a letter to the church at 2724 La Prada Drive, that doesn't tell you too much about the people. Uh, you, you don't know anything about Greg or Brent or, or, or Sammy or anybody, the people that are members of, of the church here. One of the interesting aspects of this particular church and this particular letter is that we have some specific insight into who the church at Philippi was and the people that were there in the city of Philippi and some of the people who, who likely became members of this church that Paul is writing the letter to. Somewhere around A.D. 50, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And he heads to Macedonia, and he establishes the church at Philippi. And if you're looking for Philippi on the screen, it's right in the middle of the screen at the very top, the top center of the screen. Paul heads out on this missionary journey through Macedonia, and we can read about this in Acts, the 16th chapter. And if you would, grab a Bible, and we're going to read about, uh, read this section of Scripture about Paul's dealings there in Philippi. Acts, the 16th chapter, starting in the 12th verse. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, And cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely." who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. 
And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates having to let you go, now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly and condemned being Romans and cast us into prison. Now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. As I mentioned, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and they come to Philippi. And they spend at least a couple of months in the city. And over the course of this time period, we see three different encounters that provide some insight into some of the the members that were likely members of the Philippian church, an insight into God's plan for his people. God's desire is to have a relationship with his creation, but not just... A conceptual, at a conceptual level. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. God wants you. And through the story of the establishment of the Philippian church that we see and that we just read in Acts, the 16th chapter, I want for us to notice for the rest of our time this morning four things that God wants. The first thing that I want for us to notice from the establishment of the church at Philippi is that God wants you, no matter your position in life. As Paul enters the city and spends a couple of days there, on the Sabbath day, Paul did what he customarily did when entering a new city. He sought out where the religious people gathered so that he could start preaching and discussing the gospel with them. And many times, if you look in the accounts in Acts, this meant he was going to the local synagogue. However, in Philippi, where does Paul go? In verse 13 that we read, Paul goes down to the river where it was apparently the customary place where the women gathered to pray on the Sabbath. This likely means that there were not enough Jewish men in the city of Philippi to establish a synagogue. So Paul goes to the river, He finds a group of women praying. And one of those women was named Lydia. And who was Lydia? Lydia was a businesswoman who was originally from the city of Thyatira. 
She sold purple cloth, which Thyatira was famous for being a center of the indigo trade. I'm sure in her industry, she rubbed elbows with, with many wealthy, many powerful people. In today's terms, she was in the fashion industry, and she sold fancy, expensive clothes to, to, to high society folks. She was likely wealthy from this business. She had apparently relocated to Philippi probably for, for business reasons. We also know that she was a worshiper of God. It's likely that she grew up in the Greek polytheistic religion since she was from Thyatira, but at some point she was proselytized and started following Judaism. We know that she has a family. We aren't certain if she is a widow or not, but we know that she has family at her home there in Philippi. So when Paul crosses over into Macedonia, who was the first converts that we find? It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the the Jewish men down at the synagogue. Rather, we find that the first convert, the, the first convert, Technically, in the, uh, on the European continent, by the way, was this businesswoman, Lydia. A Greek proselyte woman who was probably wealthy, possibly a widow. An interesting combination, to say the least. So often we see in the early church, Jesus and his church defied the prevailing views on things such as race and the value of women. Jesus didn't take the same racist views that other people took. He saw the value in others even when his followers didn't. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well. And I pray that we all, both as individuals and as a congregation, follow in the steps of Jesus to see the value in all races and all people that we teach our children that all people are created in the image of God, that all people of all races, of all ethnic backgrounds, deserve our love and our respect. But in addition to the race and, and ethnicity, it's important to consider how women were viewed by many people during the first century. Women were viewed by many quite literally as second-class citizens who were only there to to cook the meals and to do the chores to give birth to babies. But they weren't good for much else in many people's eyes. Romans often had multiple mistresses in addition to their wives. Jews had gotten to the point that divorce was so common that a Jewish man could divorce his wife if she burnt his dinner. But Jesus didn't take the prevailing views of the day about race and the value of women. He took the view that in the sight of God, we are all created in God's image. And while we have different roles, we have different responsibilities, we have different duties, we are all valuable in the sight of God. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
Paul tells the Galatian church that there is a place, there is a value, there is a role for everyone in Jesus Christ. That we are all children of God. And in Christ, God wants us all to bring our backgrounds and our talents to serve Him. Because of Lydia, tremendous good was done. We see throughout this chapter that she ministered to Paul while he was there in Philippi. You know, Paul goes and stays at her house. But I'm sure that, that Lydia had a continuing impact in the kingdom. We see Paul, and in, in we'll see as we study the Philippian letter, we see Paul commend them for their generosity. And we see their generosity commended in other places in the Scripture. Perhaps Lydia and her wealth contributed to that. Eventually, a church is established in Thyatira. Perhaps she knew some of those people. She likely had a significant impact. And we all can have an impact on the church and in God's, God's kingdom. Regardless of your age, regardless of your race, regardless of your position in life, God has given you a role in His kingdom. Use your talents. Use your skills. Use your opportunities to serve God and to serve His people. God wants you, no matter your position in life. The next thing that I want for us to notice is that God wants you, no matter how broken you feel. After the conversion of Lydia, we see that Paul spends some time in the city, staying, like I mentioned, at Lydia's house. One day, Paul and his fellow missionaries are on their way to pray, and a girl who had apparently been possessed with a spirit sees Paul, and she cries out, These men are are servants of the Most High God. They're showing us the way to to salvation. And she didn't just do this once. Apparently, and this would have been interesting to see, um, apparently day after day when she saw Paul walking through the city, she would follow him around and cry out the same thing over and over again, and and Paul get, eventually gets a little annoyed by it. Uh, King James says he was grieved by it. He gets tired of this girl following her around and, and saying this, and he turns around and he commands the spirit to come out of her, and she is healed. Now, we don't read in the scriptures uh, that she, about her conversion. We don't know if she ever obeyed the gospel. We do see, though, that God healed her and helped her brokenness. Think about this girl's situation. She was possessed by some sort of spirit of divination or or fortune-telling. And not only did she deal with this issue that she had, other people knew this and exploited her for it. She was enslaved by a group of people that used her to make money. They would charge other people for her services. Can you imagine how she must have felt? What kind of struggles she went through and and what she must have battled in her mind? A spirit-possessed slave girl who was exploited by other people to make money off of her. And God still made a way in her life to heal her. God still wanted to make her life better. And I think there are times in our our own lives where we begin to think, I'm just too broken. God doesn't want me. With what I've done, with the skeletons that are in my closet, with the people that I've hurt, with what I've done, with the mistakes that I've made, with the struggles that I have, God 
God can never fix me. You know, God's for you religious people down at the church. God's for the good people down at the church, not someone like me. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Psalms 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Luke 5, verses 31 through 32 says, And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God did not send his son to rub elbows with the religious elite. Jesus did not establish his church so that it could be filled with perfectly religious people. The gospel isn't that good people can get their pat on the back from God. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he died on the cross, that he was buried and he rose again to save sinners like me. And because of that, no matter how broken you feel, God can heal you and he can fix the spiritual sickness that you are dealing with. First John, the first chapters, first John, the first chapter says that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. John says that God is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sins from all unrighteousness. Not just the little sins, not just the normal stuff, but all unrighteousness. God can fix us no matter how broken we feel. After Paul heals the possessed girl, we see the third thing that I want for us to notice is that God wants you no matter what you are committed to. Paul heals this girl and immediately her owners realize, hey, Paul, what, what are you doing? This was our, this was our moneymaker. This was our ATM. We made, this is how we made our living, this girl. What are you doing? You, you can't heal her and take, take this away from us. So they capture Paul and they, they capture Silas and they drag them in front of the local rulers. They accuse them of promoting unlawful customs and practices and they get the crowd all riled up. Paul and Silas are, are stripped of their clothes and they're beat with rods and then they are thrown into prison. And this is where we learn about the Philippian jailer. He was probably either an active duty Roman soldier, perhaps a retired Roman soldier. But he was someone who is conditioned to be deeply committed to his job. Notice a couple of things. In verse 23, uh, he was told to make sure that that Paul and Silas were safe. So, So what does he do? He's told to keep them safe, so... He goes, and not only does he put them in prison, but he puts them in the inner prison. There were likely several areas, I mean, there were several areas of this prison, but this guy puts them in the inner prison, the deepest, darkest, most secure part of the prison. And not only that, but he chains them up. He is committed to this task. Goes above and beyond. But not only that, notice what happens after the earthquake. The jailer thinks that the prisoners have escaped. So what does he do? He knows that if these prisoners 
have escaped. He is supposed to die himself. That was the code. That was the rules. He was committed to his job and his life as a soldier, so he was about to take his own life in service to that code. But Paul stops him. This man had been a soldier probably for years and years, committed to his duty, committed to his job. He was committed to Rome. But once he sees and once he hears the truth, what does he do? He repents of his sins and he is baptized. He obeys the gospel. Some people let their earthly possessions or their earthly positions or their commitments keep them from a relationship with God. That's what happened to some of the Pharisees. In John, the 12th chapter, verses 42 through 43, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. How sad is it to say, you know what, I, I, believe, in, I believe in Jesus, I, I know he's the Messiah, I know he's the Son of God, but I can't follow him. I've got this position, I've got these possessions, I, I've got a life that I enjoy, so I'm not going to follow him. That's what these people did. And we sit back and read verses like that, and we hear about these people who saw Jesus and and didn't want to give up the positions in their life, and, and we sit back and we think, how dumb those people are. Those idiots, they had every opportunity to follow Jesus. They didn't want to give up that stuff. Those people were so dumb, right? That's what we think. But that is exactly what many people, perhaps some of you here today, do with their lives. They like their careers too much to sacrifice it and commit to God. So people choose a career that keeps them away from the worship service or away from their family. They like their hobbies, they like their free time too much to sacrifice it and commit to God. So on Sunday mornings, They're at the golf course or at the lake instead of in the worship service. Or they just want to do what they want to do. They're committed to their own pleasure. They're committed to their own decisions. They don't want to change their lives regardless of what the Word of God says. So they might be drunk last night. They might be high today. They might be engaging in sex outside of marriage. It doesn't matter what God says because I'm committed to me. I want to do what I want to do. But God wants you to follow Him no matter what your worldly commitments are. No matter what you're attached to in this world, God wants you to let go of those things and follow Him. This jailer had to decide that Jesus was more important than his job, his earthly duties, his past. God was more important than his earthly commitments. And once he decided that, he became a child of God. And the last thing that I want for us to notice from the establishment of the Philippian church is that God wants you and he wants your family. When Lydia and the Philippian jailer obey the gospel, what do we see happen? Did they decide to obey the gospel and then keep it to themselves? Look back at verse 15. And when she, Lydia, was baptized and her household. Then skip down to verse 33 that we read. This is the Philippian jailer. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Both Lydia and the jailer not only obey the gospel and are baptized, but we see that they led their families to do the same. God wants the same for your family. You fathers here this morning, you dads in the audience, it is your job, it is the most important function that you have to lead your family to a relationship with God. It is more important than getting them that big house. It's more important than getting your kids into that college or university. It's more important than their soccer games. It's more important than their band concerts. Mark 8, verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What does it profit you, Dad, if you provide your kids with everything that the world can offer them, but they lose their soul? You moms here this morning, it is your job. It is the most important function that you have to help your husband serve God and to help and to nurture your children in their spiritual development. You have tremendous influence on your family and their relationship with God. God wants you, but He wants your family also. He wants all of us here this morning to follow the example that we saw of the Philippian jailer and Lydia and obey His Word to obey the Gospel. And what does God's Word say that we should do? We should follow their example. We should believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We should repent of our sins and turn our, turn our life towards Him. We should confess Jesus, and then we should submit to Him in baptism. That's exactly what Lydia, that's exactly what the Philippian jailer did. And when they did that, they were added to the church. Perhaps you've never done that, and you'd like to do that this morning. We'd be happy to do that with you and for you. Perhaps you feel broken like the girl that we talked about this morning, and you'd like the prayers of the church. You're struggling with something, you're struggling dealing with things in your life, and you'd like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that with you and for you also. If there's anything we can do for you, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.